Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 152 being recorded on Monday, November 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, uh, all the trade shows going on and travel that you have been uh, plugging in over the last months, we took a little bit of time out and haven't had some guests on the show. Uh, they they don't like it when you're like, well, we could do 1 a.m. or 3 a.m. Um, so uh, the good news is continuing here with episode 152 and through the holiday season, we have a really strong slate of guests that are coming on the show. There is a theme. They have one thing in common. They are bringing to the Jason Scott show some really awesome data and insights around consumer behavior. And to kick off that theme, we're excited to have on the show Rick Kinney, and he is the head of consumer insights at Salesforce.com. Salesforce and Publicis Sapient, and full disclosure, that's Jason's company, and he played a role. He would say pivotal. I think Rick would say uh, minor. So we'll have to dig into that. (laughs) He played a role uh, in the project, uh, and it was recently completed and has some really comprehensive research into retail consumer behavior. Uh, Jason and I, Jason's kind of been talking about this a lot, Rick, and we are really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. I am thrilled to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first time guest. So thanks for carrying the torch on commerce podcasts and let's, let's dig it on in. I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about it. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, geography is interesting. I am in my home state of North Carolina, Jason's in Atlanta and you're in Seattle. So I think we've got kind of the, the, you know, the bi-coast thing covered here. Coast to coast. Exactly. It's pouring rain here. Are you guys getting decent weather? It is beautiful outside in Seattle today. We are rainy here as well. So the West Coast wins this week. Uh, So Rick, as a frequent listener of the show, you will know we always like to get things started by getting a little background about our guests and how they came into their role. So can you you share your, your story with us? Yeah. So, so as you know, I'm, I'm in a Salesforce uniform now, but it all started with a, a boy and a dream about e-commerce back in the early 2000s when, uh, uh, when I said a company called Zildjian. So Zildjian, many know as symbols and drumsticks and as a very entry-level participant in the marketing department, I figured I'd hitch my wagons to e-commerce. And so uh, I found my way into email marketing and then through some acquisitions into e-commerce. And it has been a time since I've just really been infatuated with all things commerce and performance marketing since the early 2000s. So that means uh, currently Salesforce and prior to that, a company called Demandware, which many will know from the e-commerce ranks. And then GSI Commerce, which was a, uh, another e-commerce provider back in the early 2000s. Whoa, so you got some GSI there. Um, well, I have to ask, are, are you a musician? Is that why you went to cymbals and drums? Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I thought early on in life that I was going to go pro in, in the rock star thing, but uh, change of plans, went pro in e-commerce. And uh, there, there are days when you look back, but uh, certainly it's been a really positive experience. I'm a, I'm a drummer by trade. Very cool. Um, so then... 
So you were at GSI and then Demandware, and then Demandware was acquired by Salesforce. Is that kind of the path? That's that's the exact one. And GSI came in through an acquisition of a company called eDialog, which folks may remember from the earlier days of email in the uh, 2000s as well. Very cool. Um, and then, so Salesforce is obviously a, a huge company. Um, and after acquiring Demandware, it became part of their one of their many clouds. They have like a thousand clouds. Um, so maybe uh, just for folks that aren't familiar with that 100%, maybe give a little high level overview of, of that cloud um, and then tell us about your role. Yeah. So, so Salesforce, many know, is the number one CRM provider in the world, uh, in particular to folks who are listening in now. On the e-commerce space, you may know Salesforce Commerce Cloud. So Salesforce Commerce Cloud is the enterprise leader for all things commerce providing. And uh, we are, my team in particular, we are part of our retail team. So uh, I've got a really fun group, and a really fun job that our aim is to tell that true story of shopping. And we have this super advantage built in that we get to look at the actual shopping activity of half a billion shoppers globally. and that's direct-to-consumer, enterprise brands and retailers. And inside of all those clicks and all those taps, you see the, the change in retail. You see the pace of that change and really how shoppers are acting today. And it, it provides really a great canvas to tell a whole lot of cool stories about really where retailers should be putting their investments and working towards these days. Cool. Well, we're, we're all here for the data, so let's jump in. Um, I think the um, you know, the, the name of the, the program here is shopper first, quote unquote, shopper first. Uh, so let's lay a foundation. Tell us about the, you know, how did this come about? It sounds like you, one component is you have all this data um, through the demandware system. It's cloud-based. So obviously you can see all the analytics and things that your, your aggregate um, you know, retail and brands are generating there. Um, so tell us, and you said, you know, something like half a billion. So, Tell us a little bit more about the research and uh, what was the goal. Yeah, and, and this is really, this is my favorite piece that we've done over the past, you know, five or six years of doing this. And we had first some some great co-authors, I should mention, Heike Young from Salesforce and Hilding Anderson from Publicist.Sapien. And there were three of us. And we also did this three-dimensional data set. I talked about that shopping activity. We look at a half billion shoppers every quarter. Uh, and inside of that, we see a whole lot of really great things, the devices they use, the duration they spend, the products that they buy. So we see a lot about the shopper activity. When we want to look into shopper preferences, we add in some survey data. And then we also had this really fun uh, mystery shopping expedition across 70 stores in the U.S. and London as well. And we put all those three things together and we created this, what we we consider this blueprint of retailing success and it really tells the story of what it takes to succeed in retail, given the climate that certainly we all know about of uh, some really interesting macro pressures that are facing the retail market overall. Cool. And then do you guys, so 500 million shoppers is a lot. Do you guys disclose um, the GMV going through there? I remember when Demandware was private or public, uh, separate, um, they did disclose. I can't remember the number. Um, but do you have any idea like the dollar amount of transactions we're, we're talking about here? Yeah, we disclosed last year uh, for um, uh, 2017 calendar year, we had more than 25 billion in GMV across the uh, across the Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Uh, and again, what's really cool about that is, you know, if folks are our brands or retailers or retailing brands, there are those gray lines that exist now. 
they're, they're really looking to see how they compare with other enterprise brands and retailers, in particular in that direct-to-consumer space. And that is the wheelhouse of all things, certainly Salesforce, but for this data set as well. Cool. And then again, I remember, so when Demandware was independent, uh, the the set of customers kind of skewed heavy um, fashion, I would say, or, or apparel. Did you guys do anything in the data to kind of normalize it uh, against kind of a, you know, a different categories or anything like that? Yeah, there's some really good depth in a few of those verticals that you mentioned. So all things apparel, general, active, luxury is three different flavors of apparel overall. There's a really healthy component of health and beauty inside of there as well. So that that spans from high-end beauty all the way down to some of the more cosmetics um, side that almost border on those CPG type companies. And then a couple other areas that are really interesting. We see a lot of home and, uh, and home goods as well as some electronics in there as well. So we've got this, this really cool view of, of really strong brands and retailers. For this year's report, and this is actually the second year that we ran it, last year we did some splits based on those different verticals. Uh, we do have some other assets where we look at those verticals uh, in particular and, and uh, how they compare with each other. But the, the thing we tried to get at in, in this report was how do you tell the story of all those shoppers and What's interesting, though we see differences that exist between, for instance, health and beauty and apparel, what we do see is the general shopping activity things, some of those foundational items like what device they use and when are very similar. Average order values will certainly be different for luxury apparel than uh, more of a fast fashion set. But overall, for this particular group uh, that spans those kind of um, specialty brands and retailers, uh, we see a lot of similarities across those. That's awesome, Rick. Um, and uh, I, I'm sort of a, a geek on the data set. I ask you questions all the time, and I, I'm uh, trying to avoid the temptation to go down a rat hole and get into super uh, uh, minutia level stuff. But so, in addition to that data, which you have all the time, you did this one-time survey. And uh, remind me, how many consumers were in the survey? Yes, yeah, so we had half a billion inside of this, uh, the particular data set um, for it's generally, we looked at for this one, a quarter's worth of data against the year over year period, the year before. So 2018 Q1 against 2017 Q1. So it's half a billion, a little bit more than 500 million shoppers is what we have included in the set. Cool. And then the, uh, on the survey data, how, ma- how many consumers did we talk to? Yeah, so the survey was 6,000 consumers, and that's global across six markets split evenly, U.S. and Canada, U.K., Germany, France, and ANZ as well. So 1,000 from each of those uh, those geos. Cool. And then uh, we visited some stores. Uh, and how many store visits do we do? So physical stores, we visited more than 70 stores. Those were in San Francisco, New York, and London as well. Perfect. Um, and so one of the fun things is the story you can tell by by seeing the the sort of intersection of those three data sets together. And so um, like I know that you came out with these like uh, kind of three big categories of insights as a result of looking at those three things. Um, and I, we named them. Uh, make it fresh, be where I am, and give it meaning. So I'm I'm hoping we can do a little bit of a dive into each one of those and explain to the listeners um, 
what we mean and uh, and what some of the key takeaways were. But did you have a favorite of the three buckets? Absolutely. The, the first one, and we, we shared this together last week when we were on stage together, my favorite of the mandates. And again, we consider this the, the blueprint. If you do these three, three things really well, you're able to compete, compete and win. The first one, though, make it fresh is, is my favorite. Uh, there are a couple really interesting things that jump out at me with make it fresh. We like to look at you know, what does that product catalog look like? How important throughout the, at the very top of the catalog, what does that contribute? So what we found is that the top 5% of products, so just the, your, your very best products, the top 5% is driving 48% of revenue. And a lot of folks talk about the Pareto rule here, right? The 2080, but 5% is driving 48% of revenue. What's interesting though, is when you compound that, with what's happening with the 5%, those, those top products are changing really rapidly. That we see that 59% of the top 5% are changing every month. So we're entering this era where, you know, gone are these days of, of evergreen products that you have to make it fresh. You have to be fast and fresh with your shoppers. And this is really a nod to what happened, or, or rather what fast fashion did to all of retail, that it has inspire the shopper to expect to see new whenever they come to a site or a store. In fact, when surveyed, they say 69% of shoppers say, yeah, I expect to see something new whenever I get to the site or store. And then the product catalog data is saying the exact same thing, that you need to be fast, you need to move quickly, and you can't just stand by the old, you know, old guard of products that uh, may have gotten you somewhere previously. Yeah, and that, that data, like... Coincides pretty well with the data like Google typically shares on on search, right? Like that, uh, an overwhelming majority of the um, the search volume is on these head terms, um, but still, something like eighty percent of the searches Google sees um, have never been searched before, right? Like so, it, you know, there's there's this constant churning of what people are thinking about and what they're doing. And I, when I saw your data on the catalog, I, I felt like. Um, it it was very similar that like that pe- people are coming to these sites with different problems, different challenges, um, different occasions and contexts every single time, um, and they they expect the, re- the retailer to be the, meet the needs of that particular occasion and context. And I love that you brought up that Google example because I've I've seen that data. I think I might have heard it from you from one of your tweets way back when. And uh, we decided to look at the same thing of, of when we look at our site search. So the Google data is all about SEO and what they're seeing in, in their box. When we look at site search, so when you go to the top right-hand corner of your phone or to uh, to a site and you type in a query, we want to see that you know, how, how often is that changing as well? And we know that site search is extremely important and extremely productive. Well, what does it look like across you know, these half half billion shoppers. And it turns out that 75% of site search queries are new every month. So this is this is one of the hardest parts of e-commerce. Just the, the plain, simple, basic act of merchandising is really hard because there's constantly new things that these shoppers are looking for. And it, you know, really it, it talks about it, it gets us into a lot of different topics about merchandising and how important it is. But just that number always jumps out of like, wow, you need to always be fresh. You need to not just be showing fresh, but also responding to all this activity that's happening, all this change that choppers are putting out. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, super easy to do, too. So that's the good news. Um, <laughs> the 
you know, I, we, we've said this a bunch of times, but it, that that 75 percent of queries being new every month totally underscores one of the most my one of my favorite tools in analytics platforms. And to my mind, one of the most valuable um, uh analytics views we get are these zero uh, search results found, right? And so, you know, I'm always encouraging merchants, like there's gold in what people are typing into your search, your on-site search and expecting to get results for and aren't. And, you know, that that's telling you all those new items that could be part of next month's 59% um, on your site, if only you're able to respond quickly to the to these new emerging uh, demands. And to me, that that new no results found uh, search queries are kind of the canary in the coal mine as as trends and interests and and occasions are shifting. Yeah, site site search is an endless waterfall of just great things that can happen if you take care of it. If you are seeing you no know, results coming to 15, 18, 20%, you're starting to get invite big trouble at that point. And we actually have a a benchmark that we've run for a number of years for our our customers which is how good are you at site search and looking at conversion on site search, no result search. And it is always a source of found money for retailers of cultivate your site search. Always go back to it. The good news today and now is that there are a lot better tools and then just the analytics have become much stronger and uh, the ability to actually apply uh, predictive intelligence and artificial intelligence into merchandising is much more mature today than it was, gosh, five or seven years ago when it was a lot more manual or business-driven rules, uh, rules-driven uh, than it is today. For sure. And it, it turns out those, those folks using site search have very high buying intent. So, so they're a good cohort to take care of. Absolutely. Um, I know the the next foundational thing was uh, called Be Where I Am. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what you meant by that? Yeah, Be Where I Am, just as it sounds, is, is about making sure that you're surrounding that shopper wherever she or he may be. But also, maybe more importantly, is reducing friction in that experience. And and Jason, you've you've rightfully so been on your soapbox about things like mobile buying and how much friction that has that's still in that process that folks have not gotten rid of. And uh, we look at BYM as that opportunity to inject or rather reject friction and inject a lot of that seamless opportunity. One of the easy things we we jump into is the use of mobile wallets, and it might seem like a basic. And, and maybe even, you know, the listeners here and, and, and the three of us, we're, we're somewhat tired of talking about mobile, but there's still so much opportunity with it. And, you know, we look at where we are today, that as of Q3 2018, we see 65% of traffic is just coming from the phone. And we need to get better at converting that. One of the ways that folks are starting to do that, and I, I look at um, Johnston & Murphy, footwear uh, retailer, who just done a fantastic job of bringing Apple Pay into their experience. And I love the story. And it was Heather Marsh who runs commerce at Johnson Murphy that they actually launched Apple Pay last October. So October of 2017, they launched on a Friday, soft launch, no promotion. And uh, as you folks know, you don't typically like to launch features on a Friday, but they weren't putting a lot of effort behind it. So they, they, um, they put it out there. They came in the office on Monday and Already, Apple Pay accounted for 15% of all their mobile orders. And maybe moreover, what was really impressive and they were glad to see is the speed at which folks were actually getting through that shopper journey, that folks who used Apple Pay 
were 90 seconds faster than someone else who bought with a credit card. So that bottom half of the funnel essentially has been sliced off by mobile wallets, in particular Apple Pay for their example. And we're just seeing that when you can reduce friction and be where that shopper is in their context, really great things can happen. Yeah, that, that's an awesome example. Um, and do you see similar results with other mobile wallets like uh, PayPal or, or uh, Android? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up PayPal. It, everyone forgets that PayPal, uh, at least in the States, is still far away the number one, number one mobile wallet that it's PayPal, Apple Pay is doing well. For those that are inclined to use and have Amazon Payments, that is performing well. And those really are the three that in the States are carrying some real share. Uh, Last holiday season, we saw just the last couple of days as we led up to Christmas that 40% of mobile orders were using one of those three mobile wallets I just mentioned, PayPal, Apple Pay, or Amazon payments. And what we expect to see this season is actually very similar. So those three absolutely carry uh, carry the share. We haven't yet seen evidence of some of the other ones that are out there. Uh, we're starting to see more discussion and more implementation of uh, some of the, the financing options, whether it be a Sezzle uh, or an Afterpay or a firm. But for right now, those three wallets just by themselves are really carrying nearly, uh, you know, nearly all the share of, of mobile wallets. Nice. And one of the other things that's really interesting to me in Be Where I Am um, is uh, something Scott and I have talked about a long time on the show and you alluded to is, is what we call this mobile gap that essentially – you know, traffic's increasingly shifting to the mobile device, um, which is great news, but bad news. Uh, the conversion rate, you know, tends to be, you know, a half or a third uh, on the mobile device what it was on the desktop. So that's, if you follow that trend out, that's not a very favorable trend. Um, the And a year or two years ago, Scott and I would debate, like, what the causes of the mobile gap was and if it's something that would uh, abide over time as people got more used to mobile and as the mobile checkout experience got better or whether there's something endemic in, in phones versus uh, laptops that was causing it. Um, and uh, like most of the data sources I've seen, including yours, like do sort of uh, show that while there still is a mobile gap, it is starting to close. It is. And, and there are a couple of really interesting things about mobile. And, and um, I'm going to tell a little bit of story because a couple of years ago, um, I got up on a stage and essentially did my big conversion rate is dead speech. Um, and it was, it was welcomed with open arms because what's happened overall in commerce in the past bunch of years is that you know, way back when, if you go back to the, the earlier days of when we're all doing this, we were trying to educate our boards of directors that, hey, conversion rate online at 2 or 3% is, is okay. That's, that's where we're all at as an industry. And the folks who had a store background were, were appalled, right? They're accustomed to you know, 30% of folks who, who cross the threshold are going to buy. So we had to, had to train folks and condition them to this, this kind of digital reality of 2 or 3%. When we did that as a, as a group of, of e-commerce leaders, we also decided that we would put our bonus against increasing conversion rate. So uh, soon the practice of conversion rate optimization was born and we pinned our, our bonuses against that. And, and we saw this nice rising tide of conversion rate overall. And then phones came along. And when phones came along, 
a bunch of traffic went there, but no conversions went there. So all of a sudden conversion rates started to fall and everybody freaked out. And we had folks coming to us saying, hey, my conversion rate's falling, what's going on? And it was pretty easy to point out that that mobile gap that you've talked about in this show before, that it was causing this, this decreasing conversion rate. You could still have higher orders per shopper, which is a really cool metric to look at of just, hey, look at all your shoppers, look at the orders that they're creating, and voila, you have a, a nice healthy metric to look at compared to this old stodgy metric of conversion rate. And uh, as we started to get there, folks started to say, well, how, how can I actually benchmark myself for mobile? And uh, as you may know, we have a benchmarking practice in Salesforce, but we have one super easy metric that anyone can use and put themselves against now. We call it conversion index. And you take your order share on a device. So today that order share on phones is 45%. And if you divide that by the traffic share, which today is 65%, you get a decimal. It's like 0.67 or 0.68, somewhere in that ballpark. That's your conversion index. By definition, that's showing that you have a lower conversion on your phone than your overall conversion rate, and the other devices are going to be much more positive, but at least gives you the sense of what the benchmark is. And what that leads me to is the that mobile gap is still there. There's still friction we need to get rid of, but the goal should not be par. We're not trying to be 65% order, 65% traffic, because the intention of the mobile shopper is very different. The intention is when you're in a store and you just don't want to bother the associate or don't want to be bothered by the associate, you take out your phone and you research. And we found that in the research too. Everybody uses their phone when they go in a store. You don't walk in with your laptop and start checking something out or lap on the tablet even. You walk in with a phone and we found that 83% of those, those kind of core 18 to 44-year-old shoppers are using a phone when they're in a store. Generally speaking, those folks are not buying on their phone while they're in the store. They're probably going to check out, hopefully, through that store and actually buy with a credit card on, on the way out. So the the actual uh, potential of buying on the phone is lower. So that intent is just naturally going to be decreased. So while we haven't figured out the exact value, we do know that the benchmark of what mobile looks like today has risen nicely over the past bunch of years. We've, we've been monitoring that conversion index for the past three or four years, and we see that it was you know, about 0.33. If you go back to 2014, we're up to that 0.67, 0.7 range now. So we are seeing good things happening, but we still have that mobile gap in terms of traffic share and order share. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I, I, uh, I, I love your point that like we're not the goal isn't conversion parity because all of these are are different circumstances. I always like to remind people conversion is a metric, not a KPI. Um, so there's, there's a lot we can learn from it, uh, but it, it on its own is a very poor goal. And so per your point, uh, a 50% conversion rate might be great for a store because there's a heck of a lot of friction to get to that store. People only get to that store that have very strong buying intent. You had to drive five miles. You had to park in the scary parking lot. You had to um, schlep into the store. Um, you know, people were pretty committed before they got through the front door of that store. And the further away your store is from the, the customer, the higher the conversion rate of that store is going to be because only more committed customers will do it. The closer the store is to the customer, the worse the conversion rate gets. And of course, there's way less friction to jump on your laptop than there is to get in your car and drive to a store. And there's 
even way less friction to hop on your phone while you're standing in line at the bank um, than there is to hop on your laptop. So these, these are all sort of different um, situations. And, and, you know, the goal isn't parity. I'm embarrassed to say I still have clients that, you know, come to me with a, a specific project. Jason, we just want to improve conversion rate. And frankly, more often than you would expect, they're even willing to do a performance agreement where where essentially I get paid based on how well I can improve their, their uh, conversion rate. And I always have to tell them, I will totally accept that contract. But just so you know, the first thing I'm going to do is only allow previous purchasers to to visit your website. I love it. Yeah. And I love that point about um, you know, the friction that's involved with the digital environment compared to the friction that's involved in the physical. And uh, as a teaser, we haven't put this research out, but at some point early in 2019, uh, we'll have a, an analysis of location-based conversion rate. And, and the, the spoiler is the geographies that have lower population density which generally have less access to store, tend to have a better conversion rate in digital because that is the channel they have to go to. So it's a really interesting thing to happen that when you look at the metric, you know, we, we use the term, you know, always be careful of data because it's data and other lies. You gotta be really careful in what data you accept and what data that you need to poke at and say, I don't know if I believe what's underneath that. Let's get into it. And any any retailer worth their salt knows that. They can't take anything at face value. They need to understand who's in the comparison set or what are you actually measuring? And, you know, your, your point about previous purchasers, making sure that only those folks get to site. It's true. If, you know, there's a reason why when you think about old school direct marketing was based on RFM, right? Recency, frequency, monetary. Reason why the R was first, because recency wins. And you can predict who is going to actually be a good shopper based on how they bought from you before and if so how frequently so there's there are ways to always gain the system the, the the goal should not be just improving a metric but rather trying to grow the business uh that that's terrific advice and then uh turning our attention to the third pillar uh give it meaning can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, give it meaning. We we want to do a lot of a lot of uh, diving into really that relationship between the shopper and the brand, or the shopper and the retailer. Uh, we came up with some really interesting things. So we we categorize into three pieces within this one. That there's a side of give it meaning, and the it there is the relationship. There's a side about values and about how you as a brand stand for something and hope to connect with the shopper because of that. And there's there's some evidence that shows that yes, shoppers do and will be more likely to buy from you if you have something that you stand for and they connect to. And there's 45% of shoppers said that they are more likely to buy from someone like that. We also saw a lot of evidence to say, yes, loyalty programs matter to shoppers. Uh, we We didn't ask particularly what types of loyalty programs, and there's certainly many different flavors these days. But the, the third element, my favorite within the give it, mean set, give it meaning section, is all about how you connect shopper with product. And you know the art of retailing is doing just that. And one of the best ways to do that is by using product recommendations. It's not a new tactic. In fact, it's, it's one of the oldest that we've had in digital. It's one that Amazon essentially taught us how to do about 20 years ago. Uh, but we found some really astounding numbers on um, what's happening with product recommendations that shoppers that click or tap on a recommendation account for about 6% of all visits. But that group of shoppers is driving 37% of all revenue. And when you talk about connecting shopper and product, 
there are two foundational things on product findability you've got to be great at. We talked about one earlier, which is site search. Site search is always going to be massively overweight in a good way that you'll have 10% of visits and it'll yield 25, 26% of revenue. This product recommendation finding of 6% of shoppers and 37% of revenue is just massive. And it just goes to show you how the, the power of suggestion, the power of connection and of relevance is driving outsized results. And, and there should be, uh, although there are a couple of folks that still run into these days, generally in the luxury space, that aren't ready to rest or, or give control over to, uh, to some of the, the algorithms that make up those recommendations. The evidence is pretty clear here, though, that when you can provide relevant product recommendations, good things happen with your shopper. Cool. Um, so I'm kind of sitting here and, and that's, these are all insightful. Let's land the plane for listeners. So uh, keep it fresh. If I'm in fast fashion, I'm already doing that. Um, but let's say someone's not in that category. Are there any, any tips or tricks for keeping it fresh that, you know, outside of the fashion world? Yeah. You know, I, I, I shared a story last week when I was uh, in Stockholm about this time last year, I tried to broach the topic of fast fashion with a premium apparel brand. And it was, it's funny when I, once I said the words out loud of fast fashion, just the visceral reaction of that, that's not who we are. We are not disposable. And I think what was, what was lost in that is the baggage attached to fast fashion. But what the concept has brought us is this, this need and ability to be, fast in terms of how you turn inventory, how you release product, how you get away from the, the you know, five fashion seasons into season lists and into micro seasons. And we see more and more evidence of folks, and Jason actually brings up the example of uh, what Burberry launched just uh, less than a month ago, that you know, they've started to actually uh, have these monthly drop cadences of limited edition, 24 hours, available only through social um, social channels or at least new newer media channels. And, uh, and they've started that series. And we see more and more evidence of folks that aren't in the fast fashion that might be premium or might be entirely different sector that they're pre- creating these limited edition products that are only available for a particular holiday or season. And uh, the other side of that is, is folks that are actually bringing customized goods and maybe the hottest topic that applies not just to retail, but also into the supply chain component of retailing is how do you bring those customized products, the made for me, just for me, over to a larger sect of your shoppers? And uh, we see countless points of evidence of some success in there with a lot of the footwear makers. We see uh, apparel brands, even toy brands. We saw evidence of that with American Girl, who's doing some you know, uh, customize the doll and, and, uh, and make it your own. So there's a lot to be learned here. Yeah, I think Doug from uh, uh, Fanatics always says like over half their goods are, are customized. So that, that's definitely, people love customization. Yeah, and it, it's also, you know, not to uh, take advantage of the shopper, but it's generally uh, non-promotional and it is insulated from margin hits because of that. And you're not discounting it either. So you you can put that product out usually at a premium and not need to take the 30% off at the end of the season. So there's some really good things happen with, with customized. Way less returns as well. Way less returns. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think 
I think that was the one kind of the pillars there that, that make it fresh. That's probably the hardest to get your head around. One, one question on be where I am. You, you, you talked a lot about mobile. Um, uh, you know, we, we see a lot of echoes out there uh, and other voice assistants. Did you guys discover anything about that? Is, is that where somewhere retailers should be spending some time? Yeah. You know, voice remains this, uh, this curious beast that we, we haven't seen shopping activity evidence to point to here's how well it's performing yet. It's a, uh, it's a difficult thing to measure at this point because of what's coming through from these different players. The survey evidence supports that there is some interest and activity in terms of shopping-related activities that folks who own one of these devices are taking. That the number was 70% of owners of one of these smart speakers are doing something commerce-related within the past three months. And I realize there are a lot of caveats on top of that. And I think that's that's kind of where we are right now, that there's there's not a whole heck of a lot of evidence pointing to massive success of this. And honestly, this, this coming season, don't expect it either. Uh, we'll get more of these devices in homes. We'll see a lot more use of them for basic activities. But we're not ready, especially in the, you know, I, I break the world into wants and needs, especially in those those kind of wants of uh, products that might have some complexity. I think of like, active apparel and the shoppers that are looking for the technical goods uh, inside of a performance fabrics, they're not yet just reordering or replenishing through a device. They're actually researching and getting themselves excited and inspired to buy those goods. It's going to be a little while until voice catches up and uh, maybe even needs to team up with some other elements of, uh, of, of, of buying behavior to actually win that shopper through that mechanism. Cool. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about Amazon a little bit. So, uh, you know, can I take the be where I am to the extreme and say, well, you know, there's a lot of people on Amazon uh, and, you know, I put that in the bucket of marketplaces and, you know, eBay's in there and, and even the Walmart marketplace. Uh, are you, essentially, if I follow be where I am to the logical conclusion, is the data telling you to sell on Amazon and other marketplaces? Yeah. You know, there was a, uh, maybe our, our most important finding uh, regardless of what mandate it lives in, is really what's happening in terms of how the how the, the shopper is relating to these different models of retailing. That on one side, you have a marketplace. If you follow the spectrum to the far other end, you have these brands. And in the middle, you have your retailers. And uh, what was really interesting was when asking shoppers where they choose to buy, They said, well, of course I go to the marketplace for price and convenience and access to products. And then when it comes to product innovation and authenticity and just kind of cool factor, of course it's the brands because you are able to go direct to those brands to buy now. And uh, what it shows then is the only reason that shoppers said, I will go to a retailer. And this is where where we talk about the squeeze. The only reason that someone will go to a retailer for customer service. So you've seen this squeeze emerge with brands on one side of the retailer, marketplaces on the other. And what is really interesting to me is you think about the the winners in retail in the past five or so years, and you'll get folks like Nordstrom and REI and even Stitch Fix I put in that list of just really good retailers that had and have a service proposition. Compared with the folks who have either fallen or failed, 
And you can certainly look at folks like Toys R Us and, and Pennies is having challenges and Sears is certainly having challenges. They don't generally differentiate on service. And I think what the what the retailing world has become is you've got to be good at that way that you interact with the shopper, that brands are great at showing how great they are at being a brand. Marketplaces are winning and being so successful because they have access and they provide such value in that access. And then if you happen to get stuck in the middle, you better have a way that you can actually serve your shoppers. And for those that have, have hooked on to service, they're doing well. For folks that that aren't, they aren't. So, you know, when we think about what it takes to compete alongside folks like Amazon these days, it might very well be that you need to be there, that you need to be on that marketplace. But you also, as a brand, should be considering, well, what's unique about me that will actually bring shoppers back to me? And that's where all those things about make it fresh, about limited edition products, about collaborations, about um, customized goods, that can be a real differentiator for you. Sure, put some of your evergreen product on Amazon. That's a great way to meet some of those shoppers for the first time. But you better have something unique when they actually get to your shingle that you hang, you hang on your own. Rick, uh, one of the points, one of the things that was really interesting to me uh, in the research that related directly to marketplaces was this whole notion of how important it is to get the second purchase from that customer. Um, can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the uh, one thing that jumped out, we we put it into the the make it fresh because there's this sense of needing to act with urgency. And we talked about RFM early on about the the need to really be recent. What we found is that when shoppers seek that first purchase, that sure they're they're going to a retailer or a brand, but when they want to buy something again, they go straight to the marketplace, and it's actually rather concerning if you look at what's happening that your first purchase you might win but your second purchase is essentially a shopper trading and going towards that marketplace the challenge that we see in this and, and for for smart brands and retailers that are uh, you know driving their acquisition costs based on their lifetime value for a customer and that lifetime value is a function of how many purchases generally more than a couple then your challenge as a brand and retailer is if you only get that first purchase and you lose that shop in the marketplace, your economics are totally upside down. And this, you know, when we think about acting with urgency, the need to anticipate right and immediately after they buy for that first time where you need to take that shopper and where she wants to be so that she does not attrite and go towards that marketplace, that's something you've got to be really, really good at. And, uh, and, and we just, it's, it's astounding how many folks are not yet prepared to do that and not yet prepared to anticipate that second action. And uh, the bad news is you will lose your shoppers to the marketplace. And the secondary bad news is it might not be your exact product. The next time it might be your competitors. Cool. Um, another interesting output of the research you guys did are what you call four quote unquote, foundational retail truths. And they are lead with mobile, empower the store, infuse intelligent and connect experiences. Uh, some of them are obvious, like lead with mobile um, and empower the store. Uh, you know, Maybe give us some highlights. Uh, I'm particularly curious about the last two because on their surface, it's a little bit harder for me to understand what they're. 
Yeah, you know, we talk about infusing intelligence. It really comes down to what are you doing to really derive value from the data that you know and can access? And, you know, there's a, a very basic kind of uh, hierarchy piece around what we talked about earlier, personalization. You've got to be really good at personalization or at least be able to serve those recommendations in the places that folks expect they're going to be. Uh, increasingly, or or maybe better put, uh, the standard is the bottom of your product detail page. You have to have recommendations. The challenge is a lot of people stop there. Most folks say, all right, check. I've got recommendations on site. What we're seeing is this, this new renaissance of actually using personalization to create recommendations and create better experiences in a whole bunch of different other places throughout the shopper journey, not just on the uh, on, on the shopping component of that. So first, yes, you need to have throughout those those site experiences go beyond the product detail page. That means uh, having more relevant search results that might not just be rules driven, but rather you can surface product that the shopper will be more interested in because of what you know about their last click or tap. So it's actually infusing personalization to site search or even sorting the category pages based on uh, based on the things that you know about that shopper. So that's kind of level two that sits just barely above the product recommendation. Uh, but now we're seeing this evidence of better, more intelligent experiences like in customer service that you know we're seeing. And this will be the year that when we're all shopping, we'll see a whole lot more chatbots out there. And uh, the folks at Adidas said that 34% of their inbound inquiries are generally some of those basic kind of Wismo type pieces that a chatbot can just take the bottom off of your service inquiries for those. So you're going to see a lot more uses in service. And then finally, uh, I think we're, we're finally at that spot. Uh, and I say finally because I heard it on a commercial last week that Home Depot is advertising that, hey, you can take a snap of a product and you can now search our product catalog based on that. So, you know, when the big boxes are doing something like that, then there is good investment and good technology around visual search. And we've seen this for a few months with Pinterest and with ASOS. We have, um, there's one of our customers, Rebecca Taylor, is actually uh, piloting some visual search elements right now as well. So we're starting to see that Infuse Intelligence goes beyond some of the reporting personalization into this kind of uh, higher level of actually connecting shoppers with products in more unique ways that candidly have not been done uh, before the last few months. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Rick, I think there are two or maybe even three national advertisers that are prominently featuring visual search in their in their television advertising right now. So that, that uh, definitely, definitely tells you at the very least it's, it's at, at the, the top, top of the, the hype cycle, cycle or... Or maybe it's it's uh, starting to to really add value. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's it was uh, it was one of those funny moments of I was half listening to you know the TV in the background when I heard the commercial and it referred to you know take a snap. So well, I am glad I got a DVR and recorded that little snippet and showed that live a, a week or two ago. That hey, it, it's real. Folks are actually implementing it, and that's good news because you know this is this is one of those areas that goes kind of beyond the basics and just something that's a little bit higher, a little bit um, uh, more compelling for shoppers. And it's it's actually a use case. This is a real use case. So it's good to see that uh, we have some utility 
in terms of what we're, what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, side note, you don't need the DVR anymore to capture the interesting commercials. Uh, pretty much every advertiser uploads their commercials to YouTube now, so you can usually find it. That sounds like a fun activity, just uh, sifting through commercials. Bonus tip there. Yeah. Um, anything come out of the research that that struck you as counterintuitive, or that was like sort of a fun surprise for you, who you know has been looking at this stuff for a long time? Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. One of the uh, one of the pieces of advice when I started doing a lot of this was, "Hey, never be surprised by a result." But there are still things that that jump off the page. I think one of those for me, we talked about the Amazon second purchase thing, which was maybe jarring more so than surprising, uh, because we put that together with uh, the speed at which uh, we see shoppers terminating as well. So if you run a termination analysis to see when your shoppers might uh, actually uh, leave you, what we found is that half of your repeat buyers will make that second purchase within 16 days. And uh, I think w- when you when you talk about and talk with retailers of what do you need to change, what do you need to do differently, um, one of the maybe most important things that we found in, in the survey or in the in the um, research overall is that notion of anticipating because now you are you are buttressed by kind of two things: Amazon on one side, who's going to take your shopper if you don't stay tighter and kind of put a, a bubble around your shopper, and then even for those that stay, you only have a couple of weeks before you start to lose a whole bunch of your shoppers. So just the speed of which our retailers and brands need to operate today to compete is, uh, I think it, it needs to be jarring to, to all brands and retailers today because your, your clock is literally ticking on you and making sure that you, you bring that shopper back is maybe the most important activity that you can get into. Very cool. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time talking kind of in the in the present. Um, when you look at the data, can you extrapolate it and give us kind of your thoughts on, and, and feel free to mix in your own personal beliefs, obviously. Where, where do you see the future of e-commerce going? Yeah, you know, one of the... Um one of the things that I think is most important today is that we've kind of forgotten what we've, we've been wanting to do that for years in, and I'll go back to marketing. We moved from batch and blast into segmentation and then have been injecting marketing with more personalization recently. And in commerce, we spent so much time trying to get those recommendations on the side and, and find new areas of the, of the, experience that can be more relevant. And meanwhile, on the side, we've had customer service, which is really the the true one-to-one channel the entire time. And it's been largely ignored and looked at as a cost center instead of a profit center. And if there's one area that uh, we're learning, and I think we'll take a lot from in the next couple of years, is that we'll start to see this service-led retailing model start to really take shape and take um, take effect across retail, and and you know, I mentioned the data point earlier that retailers are successful. Retailers are ones who do have a service proposition. I think it goes deeper than that. And the success that we've seen from, and I, I again point to Stitch Fix because their approach has been a service led approach. Forget the fact that uh, they have a box that gets sent to you because there there's there's certainly a lot of hype around subscription models. And, and just like any uh, any hot trend or any hype cycle topic, those things will will at some point fall and get quieter. 
just like if you go back five or seven years when we saw the flash sale model. But every one of these trends leaves something behind. And the flash sale model uh, turned us on to the concept of, of urgency and access and, and even very tactically uh, showing the word sold out on a website, which you know in, in the early 2000s was taboo. It was a mark of something wrong when your, your product was actually on a grid page saying sold out. It changed after that. Uh, after the flash sale model to be, oh, this is about brand heat. Look, you should have come here earlier in this acting with urgency capability. What we will see from all of these box models that have happened is that the infusion of this relevance alongside this notion of service and, and created just for you and curated just for you will start to be something that retailers and brands need to differentiate on actually um, relate to their shoppers in a much more one-to-one way. And, and to be honest, it's an asset that brands and retailers have, and it's one that the some of their competition, i.e. marketplaces, might not yet have honed or might not be using. So for those that want to succeed, try to play to your advantage. And, and instead of just fighting the swamp, take them out of it and you know, fight in your own battlefield. Rick, that is a, a great piece of advice, and uh, that's going to be a great p- place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, so, folks, if you were eager to get one last question in with Rick or uh, you want to follow up on anything we talked about during the show, uh, feel free to leave us a note on our Facebook page, and we'll we'll continue the dialogue there. Um I will put a link in the show notes uh, for uh, where folks can go to download a, a, a digital copy of the research we've been talking about on today's show. Um, and as always, if this show is valuable to you, the best way you can repay us is by jumping on iTunes and finally giving us that five-star review that you've been holding out on. I know you're still out there. Uh, this week would be a great week to do it. Rick, we really appreciate you coming on and spending uh, about an hour with us while you're traveling. I know that's never a fun thing. Um, if folks want to follow uh, follow you on social media and learn more about what you're up to, where should they go? Yeah, on Twitter, you can find me at Rick Kenny. And uh, I think, Jason, like you mentioned, you'll, you'll drop the link into uh, the show notes. But if you want to find this Shopper First retailing report, it will be at sforce.co slash get shopper first. And uh, really encourage you to take a read. Cool. Are you guys going to be doing any holiday updates this year uh, through the demand platform, the Bandware platform? Absolutely. We will have our flash reporting. So every morning after those big days, you'll have a nice blog post of flash report results from us. So uh, your Friday morning after Thanksgiving, your Saturday after Black Friday, and your Tuesday after Cyber Monday. We'll be glad to uh, to tickle your inbox with some really cool findings of what happened the day before. Cool. And I'm assuming if people follow you on Twitter, you'll be throwing those out there. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Rick, uh, thanks very much for joining us. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.